Welcome to $100 Plus Mileage. This is the podcast about the New Hampshire bills that might not make the headlines, but could still have an impact on you. Each year, the legislature considers about 1,000 bills, although we're down to about 500 now, so it's halfway through the legislative session. That's still a lot of legal proposals to keep up with. We pick out some of the lesser-known bills, give you the unbiased facts, pros, cons, and tell you how to get involved in the debate. I'm Mike Dunbar, content editor for Citizens Count. And I'm Anna Brown, director of research and analysis for Citizens Count. Mike, the bill we're talking about today caught my eye this winter, back when I was reading through all the bill texts, which I do every year. I'm like that person who read all the Affordable Care Act. (laughs) And so it was getting late. It was probably the 50th bill of the day. And then I saw a line about Blockbuster. And for a second, I thought there was a New Hampshire bill about the late, great VHS rental franchise. Did you see that? documentary on netflix there's still one left anna there is i mean i how cool would it be if new hampshire was trying to like attract like convince them to move which wouldn't even make (laughs) sense because then they wouldn't be the original and then we would be back to like blockbusters growing up maybe we can create like a blockbuster sort of like gamestop sort of situation but anyway this is all i I misread sorry guys this is not a bill about blockbuster the bill was actually about blockbusting which has nothing to do with outdated movie formats and Mm. everything to do with housing discrimination so blockbusting first appeared in the newspapers in the 1940s to describe allied bombings in Italy because there were these huge bombs called blockbusters, as in they blew up the whole block. So blockbusting was later used to describe a very unethical real estate practice in notably Chicago, but also other northern cities related to segregation. Basically, realtors would scare white homeowners into selling cheap by claiming black families were moving into a neighborhood. They might even hire a black woman to walk through the neighborhood with a baby carriage or a Hispanic man to drive through playing loud music in his car. And then after buying low, the realtors would turn around and sell to black buyers at way over market prices. And that is an incredibly short summary Mm. of just one piece of housing discrimination history. There's so much that happened between like, you know, redlining and restricted covenants and whatever, but this isn't a history podcast. So I've got to keep it brief. The federal government did eventually address block busting through fair housing laws and some states did as well. So that brings us to today's bill, which is all about New Hampshire's fair housing law. Right. So New Hampshire's fair housing law generally prohibits discrimination in renting and real estate transactions, right? So, for example, it's illegal under the fair housing law to say white women only on a rental advertisement. Yeah, that's like the the really obvious one, right, is like people just Mm -hmm. being overtly totally racist or also ageist or sexist or saying that they don't want people of a certain religion or gender identity or whatever. So I took a family law course back in the day and that had a presentation on this law. And honestly, all sorts of methods of discrimination that didn't even occur to me. And one I remember really stuck out to me was a landlord would show one building they own just to families and one building they own just to single adults because they wanted to keep noisy children separate from the quieter adults. But that's, you can't discriminate based on familial status. Also fun fact from that, one way the state investigates housing discrimination is by sending out actors with fake rental applications. (laughs) So you basically have two people apply that are roughly equivalent, you know, like the only significance difference is their sex, their age, their race. And you don't have to do like be a professional actor to do this. The state regularly trains people and it actually just total coincidence. I was reading another article about this this morning and they hold a training session each month and you can get paid $18 an hour to do this. So wow, there's fun a side fact. Hustle. Yes, your side hustle could be fighting housing discrimination. <laughs> um, I've I've honestly thought about doing it on and off. So, you know, yeah, it's very interesting. I, could, I would be like an excellent, just like super basic 
like I very am. boring <laughs> white girl. Like, unfortunately, I would probably be like the person who's like playing like we're gonna get preferential treatment. I'm not gonna right. lie. Like, I yeah, it's, but that's just. Ugh life. Anyway, so yes, the fair housing law generally prohibits discrimination in renting and real estate, and it's based on age, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, race, religion, marital status, familial status, disability, or national origin. Noteworthy are some exceptions. For example, it doesn't apply to someone renting out a room in his or her primary residence, you know, like so, which is kind of, kind of funny to think about, but I mean, it is your, your home. So I guess you can be as discriminatory as you want about whoever's living in your spare room or if, if you're, I, it's also also if you only have like a limited number of units and, and you live in that same building. And there are exceptions if it's like housing for older people or housing based on a specific religion. So, you know, if, if you have to be a member of a certain faith. Hmm. Okay. So does the New Hampshire fair housing law prohibit blockbusting specifically? The existing law does not mention blockbusting by name, but it does prohibit convincing someone to sell or rent for profit based on representations that, quote, persons of a particular age, sex, gender identity, race, color, marital status, familial status, physical or mental disability, religion or national origin are moving into the neighborhood. There is a bill this year. SB 126 that would revise the state's fair housing laws to include the actual word blockbusting and it elaborates more on what all that might entail. Ah, ta-da, we got to that bill. We have arrived at the bill. (laughs) (laughs) SB 126 actually does a lot more than that though, right? The bill also revises the circumstances under which a tenant can stop eviction uh, by paying overdue rent. Uh, It also enables rental assistance prior to an eviction notice. And then after all that, it rewrites the state's fair housing law. Right. The bit about blockbusting is actually just a small piece of the rewrite. So today I want to dig into that whole rewrite of the fair housing law. I was curious to learn where it came from, since obviously the past year has put a big spotlight on racial discrimination. But then also when I read SB 26, 126, excuse me, I didn't notice any huge deviations from the intent of the existing fair housing law. So, you know, sometimes the bill adds more detail, like the part about blockbusting, but it's not like the bill is adding a whole new class of people who are protected or adding sweeping new restrictions on homeowners renting out that spare room or, you know, nothing big like that. Right, right. So... As far as I understand it, it's actually the whole point of rewriting SB 126 actually has to do with funding. So the New Hampshire Human Rights Commission requested the language in SB 126 to roughly match state and federal fair housing laws if um, state law is, quote unquote, substantially equivalent to the federal Fair Housing Act, the Human Rights Commission is eligible for funding from the Fair Housing Assistance Program. So in other words, the New Hampshire Human Rights Commission could get federal funding for the work it is already doing investigating housing discrimination in New Hampshire. Right. Yep, exactly. So worth noting here, too, that uh, roughly half of all states, including every other state in New England, already participate in the federal fair housing assistance program. And this work share would be agreement would be similar to the agreement the Human Rights Commission already has with the Federal Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. So that gets the state federal reimbursement for employment discrimination cases. Right. And hey, who doesn't like it when, you know, New Hampshire taxpayers get more of their federal tax money coming back to the state, right? I mean, what's, <laughs> I mean, what's yeah, to lose? New Hampshire, New Hampshire classic. We, we always, you know, <laughs> I feel like we, we love our relatively low tax burden. And if we can get more out of it, who, who doesn't? Who doesn't want to get more right. out of it? But that's actually sort of a potential argument against this bill. So when I watched the Senate bill hearing for SB 126, no one showed up to testify against it. 
But I do know that past attempts to update the state's fair housing law to meet these federal standards have met resistance. So for example, back in 2014, the Senate killed HB 1143. It was another attempt to revise those laws, bring them in line with the feds. And so the Senate killed it because the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development was like, I don't know if this is going to match us enough. And at the time, State Representative Joseph Hagan wrote, quote unquote, this bill is an additional surrender of sovereignty to the federal government in exchange for a not guaranteed transfer of federal funding. Mm, okay, well, given how I know some of the current state reps feel about the federal government, it seems possible SB 126 could run into some resistance in the House then. Yeah, totally possible. Right. I think it's worth asking, how many housing discrimination cases are we looking at each year in New Hampshire? I mean, how does that translate into costs? Okay, so the New Hampshire Human Rights Commission has data on cases from 2018 and earlier. Looking at that, it looked to me like the commission has filed somewhat less than a dozen housing discrimination charges each year. But many more New Hampshire housing discrimination cases are filed each year at the federal level instead through the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. And I think they do that down in Boston. So looking at that data, there were as many as 78 cases from New Hampshire in 2005. That was the highest number I saw in the past like 20 years. So if New Hampshire gets approval to participate in the federal fair housing assistance program, more of those federal cases could end up getting filed at the state level. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's a little hard to know if SB 126 would actually increase the number of state investigations, which of course carries costs without federal reimbursement. Right. And so the the fiscal note for SB 126, basically at the end of the bill, the different agencies say how much it might cost them or how much money it would bring them mm -hmm. in. And the Human Rights Commission said they couldn't estimate costs because there's a lot of those unknowns. Mm. Okay, so if I have an opinion on SB 126, what should I do? SB 126 passed the Senate in March. So next up is a public hearing before the House Judiciary Committee, and that is happening May 4th at 9.30 a.m. If you're interested in sharing your opinion, you can check out our tutorial on our website about how to testify at a virtual bill hearing. So that's if you click on our navigation bar for the link for bills, it's linked on that page in our like intro paragraph. And in general, go to the GenCourt website and it has the link on the homepage to sign up to testify. So if you can't make it May 4th, though, you can always still email the committee members or just sign up for or against the bill without speaking. Okay, it's time for that time in our podcast, our favorite segment, only in New Hampshire. Anna, what do you have for me today? Okay, since we were talking about housing, I wanted to bring up one of my favorite housing court cases in New Hampshire. <laughs> Shout out to the Cow Hampshire blog. Just, I totally got it from there. Did not do other follow-up research, so can't take any credit. Um, this is in 1813, and it's from the War Journal in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And so a tenant claimed he was renting a haunted house, and it, it, it totally went through the courts. So I'm going to read from the article because I just... The article amuses me. Once again, written in 1813. So the defendant proved that he hired and took possession of the house on the 1st of May, not knowing that it had a reputation of being inhabited by supernatural beings that soon after a lighted candle placed on a mantelpiece went out without any assignable cause. Then there's like stuff about this candle going out multiple times. Um, and then the witness, who was the person holding the candle, was violently seized by the arm, an invisible hand, and turned completely around. Three exclamation points. <laughs> so the, the family being alarmed by such unaccountable events and also by founding closets about the house in L where dead men's shoes, 
don't know what that means, and understanding that the house had the reputation of being haunted before they went in, the defendant had deserted the house because his family, not fond of having co-tenants of such a description, could not live in it with peace and without fear. Um, and it goes on. They had witnesses come in who were talking about how when the house that was when occupied, they observed a quote unquote blue flame on the mantelpiece um, and people passing by would look at it. And there would be spectators. So ultimately, the jury considered and they decided that the tenant had to pay $10, which was basically a quarter of the rent he would have owed since he left early. And I mean, the question is, what what did the original owner do after that? Because this sounds like it was a really big case, and if it came out that your house was haunted, I don't I don't know how you could rent it again. <laughs> yeah, that's you know, as a landlord, you're like termites, you know, water problems, ghosts, really hard to mitigate, I would imagine. Absolutely. And I think I wanted to do this thing and maybe we can do a podcast on this sometimes, but I kind of wondered, I wonder if there are like legal, I think there are legal disclosures. If you're a realtor, like you have to disclose if someone died in the house or something like that. Mm. Um, So I feel like it'd be really interesting to go back and look at the whole legal history of, you know, how have, (laughs) how have our Halloween episode? Halloween episode. I love it. I'm going to, I'm going to find out all the legal, legal to do. And then maybe, who knows, maybe I can find like some really weird, like ambulance chasing lawyer except like the ghost version (laughs) and he's like how are you living in a haunted house you might be eligible for compensation (laughs) i have some friends in portsmouth that we can definitely call about this i think uh we're gonna be all set oh my god do they live in this same haunted house (laughs) (laughs) probably All right. Well, that wraps it up for uh, today's episode. You can find more information and episodes at citizenscount.org. We'd also like to thank Franklin Pierce University for producing and the Granite State News Collaborative for hosting. Our theme music is composed by Mike Dunbar. And lastly, we thank you for giving us a listen and thinking about how you can be a part of what makes New Hampshire by the people, for the people.